Hello, welcome back to episode 37 of Scuttlebutt, the Marine Corps Association podcast. I'm Nick, and I'm just going to quickly introduce our interview we did with Gunnery Sergeant uh, Retired uh, Ray Branham, who works for Lockheed Martin. Uh, Ray Branham is, I believe, our first aviation um, guest, so we were excited to have him on board to talk a little bit about his experience with both the Harrier and with the Sabre liner, as well as his transition into industry. So we were able to talk a lot about the uh, resources that companies like Lockheed Martin have to be able to bring veterans into their fold. Raymond goes on and talks a lot about the uh, education he did uh, after he retired from the Marines, the resources he took advantage of. Here at Scuttlebutt, we're always trying to look at the way Marines can develop professionally and move forward in their lives, both within the Marine Corps and outside of the Marine Corps. It was a thrill having Ray and Lockheed Martin on with us. Before we jump into the interview, I'd like to chat a little bit about Modern Day Marine and how much fun we had meeting Marines, meeting industry, just having a good time. Thanks to everyone who stopped by our booth. It was great seeing you. Hopefully, Everyone who said they were going to listen to Scuttlebutt is listening to Scuttlebutt right now. Shout out. There was too many of you to shout out everyone by name, but it was great talking to everybody. Um, most of you probably remember William, who was really getting involved and engaged with everybody. So we were really excited to be there, and we look forward to meeting everybody again in the future. Hey, welcome back to Scuttlebutt. I'm Nick. I'm here with Vic, who's out in California. Hello. William, who's up in Northern Virginia. Howdy. And uh, Gunnery Sergeant Raymond Branham, who I think is down in Florida. No, I'm in Texas, actually, but hello. You're in Texas. All right. Hey, Whatever. Uh, <laughs> I saw. <laughs> pretend, pretend I said Texas. I've got, uh, so he's working with Lockheed Martin in their... Um, He's a quality manager for uh, precision fire control systems. Yes, sir. Uh, specifically, the ATACMS program. ATACMS program. All right. Then we've also got from Lockheed Martin, Christina and Dana with us as well. Hey, everyone. Hey. So we've got uh, Gary Sergeant right here with us. And uh, Christina, would you mind kind of chatting with us a little bit about how you guys are supporting your vets or reaching out, kind of appreciating the military a little bit? Absolutely. Thank you guys for having us. Uh, you know, for Military Appreciation Month, we really wanted to show our gratitude and support for those who serve and have served their families. You know, Lockheed Martin's military connections run deep. We have one in five employees um, have served that are on our team. And so we wanted to share Ray's story because he is just the perfect example. He really embodies the experience and perspective that we're always looking for at Lockheed Martin. And um, he really is, you know, shows what, what we represent here. Um, and so, you know, we're, you know, Lockheed Martin is dedicated to supporting service members with programs that improve their lives and the lives of their families, enhance educational and training opportunities, and honor their selfless duty to our country, of course. We are always looking to support our military and our veterans, you know, in 2001, Lockheed Martin contributed $8 million to ensure service members, veterans, and their families are prepared 
well-supported and enabled to fully participate and thrive in society. And so when we were looking for an, you know, an amazing story to tell, because we know that there's many of them within our company, for Military Appreciation Month, we came across uh, Ray, and Ray is a Precision Fires Program quality manager. He works on ATACMS, and he joined the armed forces when he was 16 and spent 21 years in the Marine Corps. And what really struck us about his story when we were um, trying to find the perfect person to really get across our message of how we support our military and our veterans was he told us how when he was serving overseas, when he was deployed, he told us what it was like to witness Lockheed Martin products saving the lives of his fellow servicemen and women. And he says he saw firsthand how these products have to work, you know, the first time when our armed forces need them the most. And that's, you know, the foundation for his role in quality. And so uh, Dana will be able to talk to you guys a little bit about the business resource groups that uh, we have here for our military and our veterans and, you know, the ones that Ray is a part of. Well, first, I think, you know, the best thing will be for Ray to tell you in his own words, his story, um, his background, his service, his family's background, and how he ended up at Lockheed Martin. With that said, I turn you over to Ray. Thank you, Christina. Appreciate the intro. Uh, and good afternoon, everyone. Uh, so uh, as Christina mentioned, I joined the Delayed Entry Program at 16, uh, I was there at the military engines processing station on my 16th birthday. Uh, right so, away. so I came out of the recruiting. I was an opso up in Atlanta, and I've, if I'm, you were in Lakeland, Florida, at this point. Yes, sir. Okay, so cool. So, um, <laughs> kind of talk us through that because I think um, of all of our guests, you definitely have been the youngest who. You, you were the youngest who decided to make that, uh, put your feet on those yellow footprints. So the recruiter clearly had to get the waiver from your family then, right? Yes, that okay. is correct. And did and he put screws on you or were you got, you're just like, oh, I'm in? No, I'm in. And, you know, I'm, my parents, you know, were a little reluctant at first, but they know because of my grandfather's service to our country that I wanted to join as well. And, you know, it, you being a former OPSO, you know very well, you know, the information cards where you would mail in and request information. I have letters that came back to me that said, we appreciate your interest. However, since you're only 13 years of age now, <laughs> yeah. you can't really join. So, um, you know, I was ready to go. Um, and it was something that I was really interested in doing and something that the Marines really offered me is not only the tangible benefits, but as you well know, the intangible benefits. And yeah. that's what really pushed me to joining the Marine Corps, along with the many stories that my grandfather told me. He was in the Coast Guard uh, during World War II, uh, but obviously because it was World War II, they became a department of the Navy at the time, and uh, all his stories and interactions with the Marines in, in Southern California area. Yeah, that's fascinating. Like. Um... Yeah, to be that young. So, I mean, you were in the debt for like, what, two years then? Well, almost one year because I oh. actually went to Paris Island at the age of 17. Oh, man. Yeah. And 30 days into it, I, I turned 18. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't oh. tell anyone. I didn't tell anyone that, by the way, that it was my birthday. Oh, you didn't. I figured, yeah, you ended up in the pit. Like, hey, 
Happy yeah. birthday, get the pit. So let's talk a little, a little bit about your lineage. Cause like you said, this wasn't the first time that your family has seen commitments to service, right? That is correct. My um my other side of the family, you know, having spent time with my my grandparents, I heard countless stories and our my grandfather, my mother's side of the family, nine generations, um, first family member arrived in Frederick in 1752. And they, uh, they, he was from the Hessen Castle area of Germany. So if you're familiar with history a little bit, the British were heavily recruiting because of the strife between Britain and France from the Hessen area of Germany. <laughs> and, Dude, that's uh, how, how the rubles came in as well. The rubles <laughs> came to this country via the Hessian mercenaries. And that's hilarious. That's awesome. Yes, sir. And he was a cabinet uh, woodworker. So when he was recruited, he worked on the wagons, essentially. Um, he was originally recruited by the British, but when George Washington came to the area, we actually have a family book that outlines all of this. So that's how I was able to find all this out. Uh, he was, uh, he was, um, he shifted sides and joined the American forces uh, to fight for America and, and its independence. Wow. And subsequently thereafter, just about every family member served in almost every major conflict that, the, that America had fought in. That's really so which specific conflicts? All of them. The French and Indian War, the 1812, uh, the Civil War, uh, World War One, World War Two, Vietnam. <laughs> it's just about everything. Um, I have a picture of my above my office door of my great grandfather uh, when he served in the army during World War One. The photo is a little bit after the war, a uh, few years, but it, in two years it'll be a hundred years old. So. That, that's incredible so did, did growing up was it sort of expected that you would serve or was it sort of like this this family lineage where like you felt like you needed to no it, it wasn't expected it was it was more that i me personally spending that much time with my grandfather as i did it was something that i wanted to do because there were other parts of our families on both sides that um, had been with the railroad since its inception in this country and during the industrial age. But, you know, a lot of, some of my uncles actually went to, to that route, but, so, you know, some of us went, you know, into the military. And were there any other devil dogs? Or are you the only? I'm, I'm actually the only devil dog. That's it. Nice. Right. <laughs> yep. <laughs> It's, it's, uh, I didn't know that you were an opso, but I also have a very cool picture. Uh, we have a, within Lockheed Martin, a human resource business partner. And, and by the name of Charles Tulaney, you may know him. He retired as a colonel. Um, he was uh, my commanding officer when I was on recruiting duty from 2000 to 2003. I actually have a photo in the very office that I left to go to boot camp of in of me and him while I was on recruiting duty, promoting me to staff sergeant. Wow, how cool. And then uh, where were you at? What district? Uh, I was in the 6th Marine Corps district down at RS Orlando. So I was actually very close to home. I was RS Atlanta, but I was 03 to 05. So I was 6th district too, man. That was awesome. Yeah. All right. Now, as, uh, as young Ray, uh, teenage Ray, is uh, getting his feet wet in the Marine Corps, did you have any idea what MOS you wanted to do, or you just kind of just along for the ride? No. So my so 
I knew exactly what MOS I wanted to do and I chose it uh, with the hopes that I would be granted that upon successful completion of boot camp, and that was aviation maintenance. Um, my grandfather was aviation was a you know the corresponding rate in the Navy in the Navy Coast Guard, which is an aviation machinist mate. He did the exact same thing on PBY uh, amphibious aircraft. I knew exactly that that's what I wanted to do. So when I did that, um, it was it was I was very happy that I was accepted into that MOS and was able to carry on that lineage. Uh, it's very um, we him and I shared many stories because when I would go back home on leave, we'd go to the air show in Lakeland, Florida. It's called the Sun and Fun Flying, and he would talk about reciprocating engine aircraft, and I would talk about turbine engine aircraft the whole time. So I have a lot of fond memories of of him doing things like that and just strictly talking aviation uh, from a military perspective. Military and like a, a gear nut perspective too, right? Like you can get weight in there. Yes, exactly. And he, after he got out of the Coast Guard uh, after World War II, he started his own machine machinist company in Lakeland, Florida, and he carried on that that tradition working in that industry as well. So I got I got two two aircraft here in my notes that you've worked on uh, while you were in the Marines, the Aviate B Harrier, which is everybody knows what the Harrier is. Can you uh, expand on that? What it was like working on those uh, pieces of machinery? So it was very uh, interesting and complicated at the same time. Um, it's the only known aircraft that I know of that you have to take the wing off to get the engine removed. Uh, made it very difficult to work on, but a challenging at the same time. I was a jet engine mechanic on that MOS 6212, originally a 6015 before they transitioned us over to 6212. Uh, but that is the um, the power line or power plants MOS for the Marine Corps in the, in the Harrier squadrons. And we work on the removal and replacement of any uh, jet engine components to include the fuel system, the oil system, and also uh, take care of flight operations out on the flight line so we would launch and recover aircraft when they come back from flight. All right, and so you had to take those skills to the planes or the, when the planes needed new engines that came to you? Well, we had, we had scheduled and unscheduled maintenance at the organizational level uh, in the Marine Corps. So uh, if there was a discrepancy when the pilot came back from flight, we would, um, and it involved our particular skill set, we would get involved and repair it. But if there was a scheduled maintenance, like an engine was due to be removed, we would remove the engines or other components that come up for removal. The F-35 replaced the uh, Harrier, um, yeah. and the first squadrons are now standing up of the F-35. Is there any... Is it just coincidental that you're a, a Harrier powertrain mechanic and now you're working at Lockheed Martin, who's fielding the F-35? Well, it, it was very coincidental. Um, when I first retired, I tried to get on with the aeronautics division or business area of our company, but it was a um, very rough time in the job market. And I wasn't able to make that transition to support the F-35 because that was my ultimate goal. I had a lot of fellow Marines that had retired and worked at Lockheed Martin and aeronautics as well, but it didn't work out. And lo and behold, um, uh, five years later, after I retired, uh, I got a job at Lockheed Martin at two, in 2017, but I'm part of the missiles and fire control division now. So actually I'm a 
it's almost like from a Marine Corps perspective, I went from 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 power plants to ordnance. So now I'm working on on, on missiles. So um, I get a lot of grief from my ordnance friends. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and then, um, so as a uh, so the other uh, airframe that uh, Nick had alluded to is a CT thirty nine G Saber Liner. So how does a how is it as a maintainer? Did you end up as a crew chief of the uh, Saber Liner? So on my second enlistment, I got orders to go to MCAS El Toro before it shut down before the base realignment oh, cool. and closure. And um, when I got there, I was assigned to the visiting aircraft line. And because of it being Third Marine Aircraft Wing headquarters at the time, they had transient aircraft that were coming in, uh, all different airframes uh, uh, and types. So they needed someone with my skill set up there. So I went there as a corporal, got promoted to sergeant after I made the transition. And I was approached by the OPSO uh, that was in charge of S3 for the for Comcab West. And they told us that, hey, we need a crew chief for the Sabre Liner. A lot of the guys that were in, in weather or flight ops, uh, part of the side of the house, it was station operations and maintenance squadron. Had no aviation background, but that specific aircraft required the crew chiefs to go to uh, flight safety and take the pilot initial course. So they were sending, spending money to send folks up there that couldn't pass it because of a, no aviation background. So they took a chance on me, sent me there and I passed and I became uh, the crew chief for that Sabre liner and carried on with that job from 95, I think 96 to 2000. So you That's picked awesome. up the Sabre liner in the nineties and it's already, was it like a 30, <laughs> 30 year old aircraft by that point, right? Like, yes, sir. So, um, very funny story. The first passenger I ever picked up in 96 was Brigadier General Richard at the time at 29 Palms. And I step off the aircraft and I say, good afternoon, sir. And he goes, holy smokes, you guys couldn't bring anything newer. I remember riding on one of these when I was an aide to a general in Vietnam. <laughs> <laughs> now, yeah, so I think for all of our listeners who aren't aware, could you explain what the Sabre Liner is for those who aren't necessarily up on sure. it? Sure. We had the ability to carry six passengers uh, on that aircraft uh, with the passenger's luggage. Uh, but it's a, it's a, a VIP aircraft. Uh, we would carry, we'd get tasking from Air Mobility Command and the Air Force uh, because it was a asset that could be used multi, you know, multi armed forces uh, or even dignitaries from Congress or, or the Senate. We could pick up those VIPs and transport them from point A to point B. A lot of times us being in El Toro, we would uh, pick up people locally in the Southern California area or on the West Coast and transport them to Washington, D.C. And then we would fly back empty unless we had another mission to bring someone back uh, from the East Coast to the West Coast. That's so cool. And I'm embarrassed to have to ask this um, about, you know, what does a crew chief on a military private jet do? Having been that I actually wrote on one uh, when I was in Afghanistan, I had to go to some meeting uh, with our uh, RCT commander. And I thought we went down to the ADAC that we were just going to be getting on whatever 
MV22 or CH53 or whatever was leaving out at the time. And here comes this private jet <laughs> comes to pick us up. I was like, oh, dang, I, I got the bling now. I'm rolling with, you know, the OGs. And then I fell asleep. Like, as soon as we were yeah. wheels up and I was out until <laughs> we were wheels down, I was like, this is like time warp. And so I have no idea what actually happens on these things that happened on the way back as well. So mm. could you tell us a little bit about what it's like to be the crew chief of a military private jet? Sure. So starting out, I would inspect the aircraft before takeoff and before passengers ar arrive. I would also um, work with the pilots to get the flight plan submitted. And then once we were on the aircraft and the passengers were there, we would conduct the safety brief, much just like a commercial aircraft. And then after that, um, you know, we did have coffee aboard. If anybody wanted coffee, that would be served. But then after that, um, I, I sat in between the pilot and co-pilot. We would monitor communications. I would also input uh, waypoints into the flight management system prior to takeoff. I would also calculate center of gravity of the aircraft and the VR and V1 speeds for the pilots based on our CG and how much weight we were carrying, temperature of the day, barometric pressure, and things of that nature. Wow, that sounds really involved. I mean, it is. And it, it, essentially, this was OJT for you. It was. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so, probably one of the most influential passengers that I ever picked up on that aircraft. We went to the out, outer outskirts of Atlanta. And we picked up, and, and you may know this person, uh, General Ray Davis. He was a commandant from 71 to 72. And uh, it was just, he was going, I think it was 97 or 98, if I remember correctly. But he was donating a Korean, he was donating a Korean War Memorial in California uh, because he served in the Korean War, obviously. And um, it was just him and I in the back of the aircraft the whole way there. And endless stories uh, and utmost respect for that, for, for General Ray Davis. Um, uh, kind of a funny story. We were about to land and he said, Sergeant, do you mind if I get in my bag before we land? I'm like, sure, no problem. He was 82 at the time. So I walked with him and um, he's reaching into his bag and he's, and he, um, he's pulling something out. He says, can you hold this for me? And I'm like, sure. And the next thing I know, I look down and I'm holding the Medal of Honor. Uh, <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, it's kind of one of those moments. And uh, along with that and all the stories, it was just an incredible experience. Oh, sounds like it. <laughs> so aside from uh, commandants and other generals, any uh, any other notable like odd VIPs that you took on board? The second in charge of the Navy. I can't. It was one of the admirals. I can't remember at the time, but I do remember we were flying over. Um, Nashville when downtown Nashville got hit by a tornado and we had a, uh, a heavy wind downforce push us down about 2,000 feet at the blink of an eye and I looked back at the passengers and his his eyes and they were all the, the all of his aides their eyes were probably about as big around as silver dollars because they were wondering what was going on because <laughs> so. yeah, they're on a 35 year old airplane falling towards the earth yeah <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, hey, if you're uh, if the if the plane is being used by multiple services, and you go like you're scheduled to pick one up that was just used or use one, I guess not pick one up, you know, use one that was just being used by the Air Force. Is there a lot of turnover there? Or? Well, so it would still be Marine pilots, and 
myself or one of my fellow crew chiefs that would still fly with the aircraft. So we would get tasking and we would, I remember one other notable one, we flew up to Washington State. Uh, I forgot the Army base that's next to McCord, but um, we picked up a general from that base and flew into Washington, D.C. So it, it just really depends from the operations uh, department uh, the, in the squadron that I was in, you know, where their mission assignments came from. All right. And um, just not to change tiers too much, but I do want to mention right now that we're kind of in the, it's been a few days, but we just had the 110th anniversary of aviation in the Marine Corps, um, USMC Aviation. And I see it's not a Marine Corps jet behind you there. Um, our listeners can't see it, but uh, you have some kind of VTOL thing from the from the early space age. It's like it's an Air so Force this experiment. Was in the 50s. It's a, it is an XFV1. And another part of my family history, um, a couple of my great uncles worked for Lockheed in the 50s before it was Lockheed Martin. And they were electrical engineers and they supported the development of that aircraft. There were only two ever built. It was one. It was requested by the Navy. It's oddly enough, it's one of the first V-stall aircraft that ever existed um, because it launches vertically like that. And it's actually that aircraft, um, which that's an original photo from the only one that flew. The uh, that aircraft is now on static display at the. Uh, Lakeland, Florida uh, airport there, uh, where they conduct that sun and fly, sun and fun fly-in uh, air show. So, so, you, so yeah. you like tagged out with it, right? So you left Lakeland, it went in. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Um, so do you do you you big into aviation history? Is that uh something you like to look into a lot? I I, I dabble in it a little bit. I'm not yeah. deeply intimate with it. Okay, I was gonna just kind of ask what your favorite historical like pre you joining the the core aircraft was I would, so. I would have to say the f4u corsair all right i think a lot of people say the f4u corsair if you if you put held a poll of marines it would be that or it would be the uh crap i just left my mind the, the f the f4 <laughs> it would be the course yeah they like the f4 too oh the uh no worries. Uh, just to save you a bit, Nick. Um, so, Ray, you served in the Marine Corps for about 21 years, correct? Yes. Do you mind going into some detail about like some uh, notable, notable tours? Hey, future Nick here. Just want to clarify a little bit about my brain fart. Uh, I was referring to a poll that we conducted in November of 2018. November is Aviation History Month, wherein we asked our followers what the most iconic Marine Corps aircraft was, both fixed and rotary, and... The number one by far was the uh, F4U Corsair. The second place, pretty far ahead of third place, was the A4 Skyhawk. And then a little bit behind that, we had the Intruder, the A6. We had the Frog, the CH-46. We had the Phantom II, the uh, F4. And we also had the Osprey and the Hornet making some, getting some votes. Is there overseas tours you've done? Sure. Um, so... My first unit that I was signed to in the Fleet Marine Corps Force was VMA 311 MAG-13, uh, the Tomcats. We did do a lot of deployments when I first joined. We did a lot of stateside training exercises. We did one unit deployment program de 
uh, exercise. And we were, we went, we were stationed with MAG-12 in Iwakuni. While we were in Iwakuni, uh, we did probably about four to five weeks down in Okinawa with our, our DAT, our Dash B detachment down in Okinawa that was assigned to the Marine Expeditionary Unit there. I think it was 31st from you at the time. From there, we actually got to spend two weeks in Darwin, Australia in 1994. That was a interesting experience. Got to see some of Australia the first time firsthand and um, some interesting stuff down there to say the least. After that, um, I was in El Toro. I didn't deploy because I was supporting that aircraft that we talked about earlier, the Sabre Liner. Went to recruiting duty right after that from 2000, 2003 and then came back and did multiple tours in Iraq with VMA-211, MAG-13, and Yuma, Marine Corps Air Station, Yuma, Arizona. Both 311 and 211 were in Yuma, Arizona. Multiple tours to Iraq there, uh, supported Operation Steel Curtain uh, and a few others. Where were you out of? Were you, out of, you guys out of TQ or Al-Assad? Al-Assad. Okay. Uh, south, southeast end of the airfield. Yeah, we only, uh, only El Assad thing that I, I remember, because uh, we were out, I was out um, in Abu Hayat, which is just south of um, Haditha Dam, and then I was there for the invasion, and so Al Assad didn't even exist at the time. Well, it existed, but it was the Iraqi Air Force. <laughs> Anyhow, when you would go in, I think it was the, it was the East Gate, they had those um, complacency kill signs. Yes. And some genius added an S, so it said complacency skills <laughs> as you were going back in. Anyways, I, don't, I think that's, that's, that memory is going to stay with me until I die because that was hilarious. Definitely a lot of interesting times there, you know, with dwell time being so short. I'm sure you experienced that as well. There seven months, home for six months, and back seven months again. So, <laughs> Yeah, the craziest thing uh, I remember was the cans. Mm -hmm. uh, so I didn't see those until uh, we were rotating back, doing our sort of uh, decompression, like waiting for the you know our flight to to land. But yeah, the air conditioned cans. I was like, holy jeez, man, this is a game changer. Yeah, it was uh, it was definitely better than a GP tent, that's for sure. <laughs> mm -hmm. Absolutely. It, um, but we, I did have a memorable experience, uh, probably the first time I was there, and that this is how it kind of ties to Lockheed Martin, and some, and what really drove me to Lockheed Martin, and that's, I was running maintenance control for the squadron at the time, and we got a call, hey, we've got an urgent sortie, uh, which is a mission for aircraft that we have to go support, and there was a major at the time that was killed in action uh, that was supporting. Uh, one of the Mew, he was attached to the Mew, but uh, he was out supporting ground combat operations and he was uh, killed in action. Um, there were about seven or eight insurgents that ran into a concrete reinforced building and we were called in to uh, neutralize the threat with eight aircraft. We were able to accomplish that mission. And then I would say probably about two or three weeks later, as you know, um, many infantrymen would take their R&R at Al-Assad. And I was at the exchange on the north side. And I was in a flight suit, and he walked up to me and asked me if I was a pilot. And I said, no, I'm an I'm aircraft maintainer. And he said, which squadron? And I said, VMA-211, and our call sign was Wake. Uh, he said I was the person that called in for uh, direct air support after the major was killed. 
and I was danger close when I called in that air support. And, you know, every time we call wake, you guys are always there. And uh, I just want to say thank you. And from that moment on, that's what really resonated with me about once I'm retired, I want to continue to carry on that service uh, and support airspace and defense products, especially from a quality perspective, because as Christina said, and, and, and Dana said, you know, they've got to work right the first time and every time. So. Yeah, absolutely. What was it like then having multiple tours? I guess, did you sort of see the progress where a lot of those, like the, the amount of ticks that you guys had to respond to was dropping or was it just always constant, like go, go, go. And the, the progress was, you know, looking at the blades of grass across the field sort of thing. Yeah. I would say the latter, uh, because I was there, my multiple tours were between the 04, 08 timeframe. Okay. And, and it was pretty heavy. You know, yeah. Yeah. Al one didn't happen until I think what latter part of 06 or 07. Yes. And that was the, the great SUNY awakening. And then how about retirement then? So we shift gears a little bit. You talked about you had re- originally tried to come on board with Lockheed Martin to help out with the F-35. Uh, and then five years later, you're now with ATAC homes. What was what was transition like for you? Um, so it was pretty tough. Like I said, the, the job market was pretty tight in 2011. It took me about six months to find a job. And when I finally found that job, it was with another aerospace defense company, uh, not Lockheed Martin. Um, but I took that job, but it was in quality as well. And then when we... When I did that, at first it was tough because, you know, here I am, a gunnery sergeant in charge of a division within within the squadron uh, of maintainers, especially because my last squadron was VMAT-203, which is a training squadron. So I had about 100 Marines and 30-plus and aircraft, a lot of responsibility. Um, and now I'm going to a little piece of the pie. So it, 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 was, it was tough at first, but then I realized that we were all equal partners in it and, and that it was important for me to do my job and handle my piece of the pie. And once I did that, I, you know, it, I, I, I would say I pretty much slid right into my responsibilities. And what, was that something that you had picked up from like tap and tamp um, or was that, another sort of like being the crew chief of the of the saber liner like that's sort of an ojt sort of thing it it was kind of an ojt sort of thing um you know a lot of times i would go to my manager and and i would say hey how do you feel about this and he and not being very specific but you know trying to get some feedback from him and he goes well where do you think you would find the answer for that and it that kind of clicked with me right away <laughs> because he's, he didn't want to tell me the answer. He wanted me to find it on my own, you know, teach me how to fish kind of thing. And right. I was very great, grateful for that. He was, uh, he was in the Navy, so he understood the importance of, of, of being able to do that. So, so do you mind going into detail, I guess, how you were able to transition from the Marine Corps into civilian life in Lockheed Martin? Sure. So uh, it was, like I said, it was a little tough at first, but I made some adjustments. Uh, I went out and educated myself. Um, I finished my bachelor's degree in my last, I want to say I started in 05 and graduated in 09. So even in the middle of all those tours in Iraq, 
I was able to complete my bachelor's degree in aviation management. When I got out into the airspace defense industry, I realized that I lacked a lot of business acumen and the skills associated with that. So I used my uh, GI Bill to go off and get an MBA so I could kind of hone my skills from a technical perspective and a business perspective. And then I also went out and got a master's of science in aeronautics. So that way um, I was, a, I guess you could say a dual threat from an education uh, perspective. And, you know, that really helped bridge that gap. It took me about five or four years after I retired to accomplish both of those. But when I did, uh, it helped me accelerate my career faster. And Lockheed Martin was very supportive of that and, and allowing me to do that in my, uh, in my free time. And, and they absolutely encouraged that within the company as well. That's awesome. What would you recommend for veterans who are leaving the service uh, in order to transition? Like, what advice would you give? I, I would say that it's it's important if you if you if they have signed up for the GI Bill, and, and I remember my drill instructors, they almost made all of us do it. So I'm pretty sure every Marines has it. So it, it's important to continue that education, and, and that was ingrained with me with my grandfather in the service that he did. He said take advantage of everything that you can when it comes to education and teach yourself. Um, he was a self-taught man on many different skills and it ultimately, you know, made him successful throughout his life. So I, with that solid foundation, it helped me to be successful. And then, so I would recommend to everyone that's leaving the service, you know, get that education because it's going to help push you over the hump and make that transition easier. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many opportunities uh, between, you know, TA tuition assistance uh, for those Marines who still have enough on their contract. And then obviously there's MESEP, which I wish I had known about MESEP. Uh, I probably wouldn't have gone right into college out of high school. Uh, it's such an amazing program. Um, do you feel like when you were in that those sorts of opportunities were very well known or did you really feel like it was a lot of um, personal initiative that you had to go out and seek that kind of information? So I would say my first 10 years, you would have to go out and seek that information. Um, and then coming off recruiting duty really helped open my eyes uh, to it. And, and looking back, oddly enough, um, one of our other passengers on that Saberliner aircraft was General Christmas at the time. <laughs> nice. Uh, and him and his aide were both telling me while we were on an aircraft flight one time that I should apply for a program. And this is before recruiting duty. And I had no clue what they were talking about. And I never pursued it. And I look back on that day sometimes and I wonder if they were trying to poke me along and tell me to do that. And <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's one of the things I definitely found. I mean, between ECP, MCP, and MESEP, that the big differentiator was just those who were willing to apply. And I think now there's so many universities that have MESEP programs that you really can pretty much go where you want to go. Um, obviously, you've got to meet all of the entry requirements and stuff, but if you can get a decent score on some of those standardized tests, there's not really many universities that are going to turn down government money. <laughs> yeah, yes. They don't have to worry about you making tuition, and that's the thing. Like They want you to show up. Exactly, exactly. And and I'm still doing that to this day. I'm, I'm working on my doctorate of business administration, focusing on strategy uh, for my dissertation. I've got about a year left, so 
I'm still continuing that torch and carrying the education piece of it. And uh, I probably will and until I retire from Lockheed Martin before I become a full-time professor, but I'm gonna stay, my plan is to stay relevant in industry until I'm of retirement age and, and then uh, go out and possibly pick up the teaching gig as a professor. That's cool. And so you, being at Lockheed Martin and I would assume company that you worked for before Lockheed Martin, but there's so many veterans that you work with, or at least that are all, you know, that are part of the Lockheed Martin team. Do you work directly with a, a lot of veterans also? I do. Uh, matter of fact, my, my direct manager is a former Marine. Uh, he worked on F4 Phantoms. Um, no. So common bond there uh, during the seventies and eighties. Um, the matter of fact, the first gentleman that hired me in to Lockheed Martin was a Marine as well, a C-130 uh, mechanic. And so, you know, my old commanding officer from, from RS Orlando is actually a human resources business partner uh, in the Virginia area on the East Coast, uh, Colonel Charles Tulane. He's supporting the hiring of veterans out there. So going back to those business resource groups that we talked about earlier, uh, I do have a service-connected dis um, disability, although it's not combat-related. I kind of couple that business resource group that I'm involved in, which is ABLES and Allies, folks with disabilities, and then the MILVET side. So I try to, not only do I work with veterans a lot, but I also support hiring as well of military veterans, and I'm, I'm a direct hiring manager. So I support military veterans being hired and specifically I'm a huge proponent of disabled veterans being hired into the workforce. That's awesome. What a great cause. And then, so are you, um, is that just for the Texas area or is that nationwide? So it, it could be nationwide uh, because I do uh, have supplier quality field engineers that report to me that are regionally throughout the United States. So um, it could be that support our program and it could be anywhere in the United States. Awesome. And then, so I guess, uh, for any of our listeners who are interested, like how would someone reach out and get hold of you? So uh, I am on LinkedIn. I could be looked up there and 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 be contacted, and I could point them into the uh, to the appropriate resources where they could apply. And um, Dana, do you want to talk about some of the business resource groups that Ray is in? Kind of those kinds of groups that we have at Lockheed. Sure, sure. So Ray talked about our Milvets group. Um, he also mentioned our Able and Allies group. Um, so that is one of several different groups of diversity dimensions. Um, we have um, ethnicity, gender, gender identity, expression, um, generations, um, and race. We have different groups all related to those items. Um, and so that that's just part of our company's way of wanting to make sure that everyone feels welcomed and understood that they can bring their full authentic selves to work and that um, they, they're provided with the necessary tools uh, for their professional and personal development and success. And a lot of these groups are doing service-oriented activities as well related to these items. So um, Ray's mentioned that there's some service groups there, some service projects. Um, I know that um, recently we had one of our MILVETS members recognized by the Orlando Business Journal as a veteran of influence doing a lot of great work in the Orlando community where we have Lockheed Martin location there. And so um, that's just one of the many things that they're doing across, across all of our Lockheed Martin um, locations across um, the United States. 
um, just to give you a little bit more background um, on MILVETS and ABLE and Allies. So ABLE and Allies is for uh, recognizing any of our um, employees or the allies that um, have a, a disability or different abilities. Um, and then uh, if you are an ally with that, you can join. Um, if you, um, you know, have maybe have like a, a, a family member who identifies with that, um, same thing for MILVETS. So we have uh, family members of MILVETS, uh, military veterans, um, who are part of that group as well as veterans. So um, a lot of different opportunities there for employees. Does anybody else have anything they want to throw on the, on the fire here? I, I think we're good to cover. I uh, think we'd like to do the ceremonious uh, last question. Yeah, absolutely. So we have this um, pseudo tradition. We ask our guests um, their favorite day in the Marine Corps. So, Ray, like, what's your best day in the Marine Corps, man? So it was 1994, and probably one of the most down to earth Marine Corps birthdays we ever had. We were coming back from that unit deployment program exercise that I talked about after being six months abroad. We were in the theater on November 10th, enjoying the Marine Corps birthday, waiting, going through customs and watching Forrest Gump as it was released on the movie theater. So it, it was a great time with friends and fellow Marines. And to me, it was just a unique celebration. It's nothing like anything else you could have seen. But a close second is that moment when that Marine came up to me and thanked me for providing support. That that's that resonates with me just about every day and every time I, I I do my job. That's awesome. Thank you. All right. Well, it has been awesome having you on, Ray. Uh, Christina Dan, it's nice meeting you guys too. Um, so hey, can I add one more thing, Nick? I yes. know that Ray was. You guys were talking about jobs and stuff, and so I just kind of want to throw that like resource out there. Um, if you guys can throw this in somewhere, but, um, you know, at the end of the day, if you want to make a, you know, a difference working on cutting edge technologies that address the world's most complex challenges, then, then you want to be working with Lockheed Martin, you know? So we really want to attract, develop and retain the best of the best talent to develop the breakthrough solutions that will shape the future. And we know that people with military backgrounds have the perspectives and the experience that we're always going to be looking for. So if you're looking to pursue a career at Lockheed Martin or you're interested in learning more about the types of jobs that we have here, you can just visit LockheedMartinJobs.com. All right. And of course, any friend of Marines is a friend of ours. So check that out, everybody, uh, if you're looking for work. And uh, we'll catch everybody on the flip. Yep, it was Thank a pleasure. You. Thank you, everyone. All right. I hope everybody enjoyed that awesome conversation we had with Ray. Uh, you can find the resources linked below. And if you are listening uh, in your car, and you want to find those resources, we have them linked at mca-marines.org slash scuttlebutt within episode 37. Um, this was our most uh, involved conversation. We had people everywhere, all over the country, um, different time zones, different internet connections, different microphones. So thanks for bearing with us throughout the whole thing. Um, Sorry if it didn't match our normal audio quality, but I think that the content speaks for itself. Uh, but that might just be me being a little biased. It is uh, scuttlebutt after all. 
Of course, we need to do our normal disclaimers here. The opinions on Scuttlebutt are just that. They are opinions. They do not reflect that of the Marine Corps Association, the Marine Corps, or Lockheed Martin. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next time.